It is Monday, December 11th, 2023, and this is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellams. I'm Matthew Moore. Today, how do we determine what makes a plant invasive? A federal grant has been awarded to a U of A ecologist to help combat the expansive growth of harmful plants in the local environment. Humans have been moving around critters and plants since we've been moving ourselves around, right? So, but that was always looked as a benefit. Plus, memorable moments from Arkansas political debates. Will you guarantee all of us that if re-elected, there's absolutely, positively no way that you'll run for any other political office and that you'll serve your term out in full? You bet. I told you when I announced for governor, I intended to run, and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve four years. First, the news from NPR. KUAF is supported by Butterfield Trail Village, a premier Northwest Arkansas retirement community catering to active lifestyles and resident well-being. Offering a variety of activities and living options from apartments to village homes, plus outdoor spaces, including access to city trails. ButterfieldTrailVillage.org for more. Support for KUAF comes from the Clinton School of Public Service at the University of Arkansas. Their MPS degree is an action-oriented program focused on preparing students for the tough work of on-the-ground change. For the fall 2024 enrollment cycle, the school is expanding its range of merit-based scholarships and cost-of-living stipends to enrolling students. More at clintonschool.uasys.edu. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, December 11th, 2023. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Thank you so much to those of you who contributed last week during our Season of Giving fundraiser. Your support keeps Ozarks at Large available to listeners in Northeast Oklahoma, Southwest Missouri, Northwest Arkansas, the Arkansas River Valley, and across Central Arkansas with our partnership with Little Rock Public Radio. We so deeply appreciate your continued support. First up today, the federal government recently granted $650,000 to University of Arkansas-based ecologist Caleb Roberts to help combat the threat of invasive species. Roberts is leading a research project to develop early detection and extirpation system for exotic species that harm native ecosystems. The team will initially focus research on kogan grass, the seventh worst weed in the world, and a newcomer to the natural state. But... How do we determine what is an invasive species, and how do they get that way? Ozarks at Large's Jack Travis reports. I say, do you still think it's a meteor, Professor? I don't know what to think. The uh, metal casing is definitely extraterrestrial. Uh, not found on this Earth. Friction with the Earth's atmosphere usually tears holes in a meteorite. This thing is smooth, and you can see a cylindrical shape. Something's happening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is terrific. This end of the thing is beginning to flake off. The top is beginning to rotate like a screw, and the thing must be hollow. Move it! Keep those men back! Keep those idiots back! Come on, get the top! He's off! The top's loose! Ladies and gentlemen, this is the most terrifying thing I've ever witnessed. That's an excerpt from a 1938 CBS Radio Network broadcast of War of the Worlds, a fictitious story by H.G. Wells chronicling a worldwide alien invasion. The broadcast was a live dramatization. However, the narrator, Orson Welles, framed the story as a piece of news occurring in real time. 
That sent some of the American public into a panic, inciting a few terrified citizens to contact authorities in fear of an actual extraterrestrial invasion. The human fear of interlopers is a persistent theme in our history. Even outside of green men from outer space, we are locked in a perpetual struggle against species encroaching upon our own little world. We have given certain plants and animals the moniker invasive species, but much like H.G. Wells' novel, this is an invasion we created. Therefore, the pressure is on us humans to stop invasive organisms before they wreck natural and agricultural ecosystems. You've probably heard this term before, invasive species. Caleb Roberts is a U.S. Geological Survey research ecologist at the Arkansas Cooperative Fish and Wildlife Research Unit, which is based in the U of A's Biological Sciences Department. He says invasion ecology, or the study of invasive species, is a relatively new field. Humans have been moving around critters and plants since we've been moving ourselves around, right? So, um, but that was always looked at as a benefit, right? We move corn around or we move whatever crop we have around, right? Cattle. Cattle, exactly. So um, th- we never really considered that. It wasn't until we saw, sort of started seeing some harm from it that we started to consider um, how what we, we might call invasive or not. In 2016, the federal government passed an executive order titled Safeguarding the Nation from the Impacts of Invasive Species. The order laid out specific definitions for what we call invasive species and non-native or alien species. Non-native organisms are those that occur outside of their indigenous habitat because of deliberate or accidental human activity. Non-native or introduced species become invasive when they start to cause harm. But Robert says this understanding can become muddled when you consider. It's completely defined by us, by humans, right? There's no like objective way of saying what is invasive and what isn't. But what there are some sort of general generalities, right? So one of us is geography. Is this species from this continent? Is this species from this region? Um, those are things that can make things non-native. And then if they're aggressive and if they have negative impacts from our perspective, that can also register as an invasive species. If they, if there's some sort of historical um, reason why we would think there is, you know, um, that, that could be a reason why. And then also uh, the sort of genetics behind it. You know, are these things um, a different, you know, genotype or whatever from, from the native stuff? Some of these non-native invasive species now call Arkansas home. Feral hogs cause farmers anguish as they destroy agricultural land. Kudzu covers swaths of hardwood forest, choking native species and starving them of sunlight. Invasive species have caused over $1.2 trillion in damage across the globe over the past 50 years. Robert says the people losing money are desperate to find a solution to these threats. What's more, invasive species are highly adaptable and aggressive, and they actively imperil the survival of native species by disturbing an ecosystem's natural balance. Roberts and his team have dedicated their work to mitigating the dangers invasive species present. Earlier this year, Robert's team received a $650,000 federal grant from the Department of Agriculture to develop an early detection system and rapid response framework to combat the impact of invasive species across the country. He says anticipation is key in a battle with natural forces. The best way to deal with invasive species is to deal with them before they get there, or barring that, deal with them very early on in the invasion 
process uh, that is the most cost-effective and uh, successful way to do it. So, and, and part of that is, you know, detecting them early uh, because when they first get here, you know, they're pretty rare. So um, you need to be able to sort of find them quickly and then, if possible, eradicate them. That's where the rapid response comes in. So we're trying to develop a, a sort of nice standardized system that incorporates some of the aspects of invas- invasive species ecology, also motivates the rapid response by quantifying the impact ecosystem services of the invasive species and then sort of mapping that on to where they're going to be and where they are. Robert's team is currently focusing on kogon grass, a warm season perennial grass with saw-like edges and a love for fire. Biologists considered the plant to be one of the worst invasive species in the world. It was first introduced intentionally in Florida during the 1930s to be used as a packing material and forage for livestock. Scientists discovered the species in Arkansas in 2021 near West Helena. Robert says kogon grass is a good species to use as a starting point for examining other invasive plants and animals due to its range and adaptability. Yeah, so the, the tricky thing about invasive species is um, they're very surprising. So it's, I, I'll sort of hedge myself a little bit and say there are some places where it probably won't be um, but there's, it's also, they're also, the other thing about invasives is they're very surprising and adaptable because um, it, it may be sort of weird to think about this, but an invasion happens multiple times. There are these, what they call propagules, the sources of the, the invasion. So Kogan grass, its native range stretches from Australia all the way to southern Japan. And, you know, as you might expect, that the, the genetics of the species is different across that range, right? So there have been introductions of Kogan grass from different parts of its range into different parts of the U.S. We have also cultivated a strain of, of, of Kogan grass that's sold in some um, for, for horticultural purposes, which is supposedly uh, sterile but has been known to become not sterile uh, within a few generations. So you've got this recipe for a highly adaptable um, species that, you know, is sort of subtropical, tropical in its native range, but has recently, as of last year, been seen in Boise, Idaho. So somehow it's able to adapt to that. So it's difficult to say where it won't be. Probably won't be in a straight-up desert, probably won't be in a swamp, but there's, like, other places appear to be fair game. Kogon grass's adaptability is matched by its hardiness. Robert says the grass also has a propensity to stuff out other plants and animals. It's one of those um, disaster plants, um, very difficult to kill. Um, it's, you have to really whack it with herbicide. It, you can treat it with fire, but it also sort of likes fire, and it burns very hot, and it'll regrow. It's rhizomatous, which means it's clonal. Um, so um, it grows with tillers under the soil, um, outward from like a point. Um, so it's a big monoculture clump, right? So that means that basically nothing but Kogan grass grows within um, the clump. Um, and it's bad for timber production. It is very flammable, so it's also a risk for humans. Um, it's not palatable for, for livestock. And um, there's been fewer studies on its effects on uh, biodiversity, but there's some... Um, some work that showed that it's bad for plant biodiversity and it's almost certainly bad for ground nesting bird diversity or, or and things like quail and turkey probably are going to n- dislike it. 
He says they'll use statistical modeling software to map out landscapes that Kogan grass has infested in order to predict where it might spread next. We have records of where Kogan grass is and has been, right? And we, we in the United States and elsewhere. So we can say uh, where it will likely be in the future based on just how far can it disperse, um, how how far can the folks spread it, um, because they can be spread by people, of course. Um, so those are some sort of basic things. But there's also, you know, an environmental um, factors that are make it more or less likely to be there, right? So, for instance, um, how close is it to a road? It's been very well documented that lots of invasives and cogan grass, too, can be easily spread by roads, like mowing on roads. And as a matter of fact, that's where it was first noted along, a, a, um, I believe, a median at Helena, West Helena. So, and then, you know, things like climate, um, the land cover that's around it, the soils, those are all things that will contribute to whether it will or won't be there. So you have all that information and then you can use, you know, some sort of magic of statistics to, to predict where it will be um, in the future. The project is still in the early stages of development and research, Robert says factors like climate change make predicting the path of invasive species more complex. One of the big debates is, are these species adapting while they're here? Or are we, or are we seeing, because we've had so many of those propagules, like I said, so, so many individual introductions of different genos, genomes, essentially, from the species, does it mean that we have artificially increased their genetic library so they can just flip through the pages and find the right combination of things so where they can deal with Boise, Idaho? They wouldn't have been able to do that in their native range, right? So um, there's all kinds of reasons. Also, you know, we've genetically, mod- you know, we've selectively breeded this Kogan grass and many other invasive species to be very adaptable to lots of different environments, right? So sometimes we create our own worst enemies with invasive species. And climate change just adds another piece to the puzzle, right? That's right. Yeah, it's. I tell this to my class, but I. But uh, you know, there's that quote from uh, um, Jurassic Park. You know, life will find a way. I mean, really, that is like the thing about invasive species. They, they are very adaptable, and um, as soon as you think you've got them figured out, you're probably going to be wrong. For Ozarks at Large, I'm Jack Travis. Ahead on today's show. What happens when a debate includes something called a free-for-all? But I'll throw think he's a miserable failure when it comes to creating jobs. And he tells everybody how good it's going to be. It's not good. You get out across the state of Arkansas, we're not creating jobs. Well, what does that and make I, you if I'm a miserable failure since your record's so much worse than mine? The hey, bureau, go back. No, the, let the me, bureau let me of Labor Stat- Go back to Randy Dixon's latest batch of archival material from the Pryor Center, full of memorable political debate highlights. That's in just a bit on today's Ozarks at Large. Get into the giving spirit with the KUAF Giving Tree. For over a decade, we've been supporting local nonprofits. Last year, you helped us make a difference with Seven Hills Homeless Shelter. And this year, we're excited to spotlight the Yvonne Richardson Community Center. The YRCC is devoted to preparing today's youth for tomorrow's challenges through education, recreation, and social engagement. They're not just a center, they're a catalyst for growth, fostering accessibility, and evolution in our community. This holiday season, join us in understanding the needs of the Yvonne Richardson Center 
from snacks to sports gear, activity books, and more. Every donation makes a meaningful impact. Stay tuned to our Community Spotlight series for actionable ways to contribute. The Giving Tree, in partnership with KUAF Public Radio, is your voice for impact. Let's make a difference together. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Matthew Moore. I'm Kyle Kellams. Washington County Department of Emergency Management has received additional funding to build a new emergency operations center. Last month, Washington County Quorum Court voted to approve nearly $5 million to build the $8.1 million center. Quorum Court previously approved a million dollars to design the new 11,000-square-foot facility. The remaining money will be paid out of the county general fund reserve in lieu of federal grants. John Luther is the longtime director of Washington County Emergency Management. He says the new center will be built on the south campus of the Washington County Government Facility. It was very satisfying to know that the Quorum Court uh, certainly agrees that the county as a whole Uh, needs an emergency operations center. We will benefit from it. That's where our offices will be. That's where we'll be able to work day in and day out. But it's really not built for us. It's built for us to work from, to actually serve all the county. So um, I was very thankful that they felt like that was a priority. The county emergency center has relocated several times over the past two decades. It currently operates out of a state fire academy training facility in Lincoln. The new county emergency center will have an uninterruptible power supply and secure communications. It will also be built to FEMA requirements to withstand natural disasters. So what we've got is basically a two-part facility uh, connected by what I've called somewhat of a vestibule between the two. Um, The hardened facility where the actual emergency operations center is, um, and then the very small uh, enclosed breezeway uh, that connects us to additional offices, training room, which can also be our briefing room. So it's a it's a two-part property. The main portion is certainly hardened uh, to withstand, as you said, hopefully uh, anything that uh, we might face related to severe weather or, or any other uh, threats that might, that might come. In 2009, Washington County Emergency Operations responded to a record ice storm and polar vortex that crippled the region for weeks, as well as devastating tornado and extreme flood events. Luther says this is the perfect time to build it. And so we see this as an opportunity not only to have an emergency operations center to serve Washington County, but to also potentially serve our neighbors around us. Luther says the new Washington County Emergency Operations Center is tentatively expected to host a ribbon cutting in the spring of 2025. The Walmart Arkansas Music Pavilion in Rogers posted record high ticket sales in 2023, more than 15% higher than the previous year. In an interview with our partner Talk Business and Politics, AMP's Public Relations Director Jennifer Wilson says the transition to digital tickets allowed them to better track their audience, which gives them a more accurate picture of their audience. The year's highest attended show was Lana Del Rey, which was one of 16 shows that sold more than 10,000 tickets. More than a dozen shows have already been scheduled at the AMP in 2024, including the recently announced tour of Sarah McLaughlin. She will be in Northwest Arkansas July 2nd with special guest Feist. The tour is in celebration of the 30th anniversary of McLaughlin's triple platinum record, Fumbling Towards Ecstasy. Remember when records used to go triple platinum, Kyle? Yeah, yeah. that hasn't, doesn't happen that often. <laughs> not, not too often these days. Tickets go on sale for that show on Friday.
From Little Rock, Arkansas, Issues and Answers, the award-winning interview program. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kelms with me in the Anthony and Susan Hoy News Studio. With that musical intro is Randy Dixon with the David and Barbara Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral Visual History. Welcome back. Thank you. What is that music? It's great to be here. Music gets us in the mood for? Debates. As if you hadn't had enough debates with uh, the last GOP presidential debate ending last week. Right. Um, we're going to talk about more debates from the past, but... We'll cut through the boring parts, and we'll have uh, the historic meat, if you will, uh, to some, well, big debates in the state. Uh, KETV, as KETV always was, uh, was the innovator and would carry these debates, even back in the the early, late 60s and early 70s. Um, So the first one we come to is... Is considered one of the, and I was in researching this, going through, looking at what would be considered the great debates. And, of course, we're talking modern history with television, but uh, the first one that comes up is from 1972, mm-hmm. and you know which one I'm talking about. Right. Pryor McClellan. Right. Uh, David Pryor was governor of Arkansas? No, he no, was congressman. congressman. Congressman Pryor, and he was and taking on McClellan, who was the sitting senator. Right. He was 76 years old. He was facing 38-year-old uh, David Pryor, who was in Congress at the time, as you said. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a primary. Mm-hmm. So you'd think, well, it's not that big of a deal— a debate for a primary, but we have to go back and think about in 1972, what was the political climate in the state? Well, if you won the Democratic primary, you won. You were in. I mean, there were no Republicans of much note. Right. Yeah. Right. So this was looked at as, well, Yeah. whoever wins this is going to have the seat. So, you know, the primary was it. Um, so, uh, from the KTV archives, I want to play, um, the, the opening segment of the McClellan prior debate, which aired on KTV the Sunday evening, right before the Tuesday election day. Good evening. I'm Jim Pitcock, news director of KATV. Tuesday, Senator John McClellan and Congressman David Pryor will face each other in a runoff election for the Democratic nomination for the U.S. Senate. Tonight, these two men are in our studios in Little Rock and will discuss the issues of the campaign. This program is originating from KATV and will be seen over KTVE in El Dorado, KFSA and KFPW in Fort Smith, KGTO in Fayetteville, KAIT in Jonesboro, and KTHV in Little Rock. It will also be heard on approximately 40 radio stations. Congressman Pryor will speak first for 18 minutes. Senator McClellan will then speak for 20 minutes. Congressman Pryor will have 11 minutes. And Senator McClellan will have the final nine minutes. I will keep time on both candidates. Now, here is Congressman Pryor. Senator McClellan, Mr. Pitcock, and fellow citizens. I would first like to express my deep appreciation to KATV and those other members of the communications media for cooperating and bringing to our people an opportunity to see and hear live face-to-face this evening's debate. 
I also express my appreciation to Senator McClellan for his willingness to participate and to the people of Arkansas for their willingness and public support by viewing this climax of a long and hard-fought battle for the United States Senate. In any debate or in any political campaign, notwithstanding the issues raised or the slogans used or the political differences of the candidates, there is one central proposition. Tonight that proposition is that Arkansas is on the eve of choosing a United States Senator who will represent this state and her people until 1979. But the question remains, will our people return the present Senator of 30 years or decide to make a fresh start? Senator McClellan. Senator. Thank you, Congressman Pryor, Mr. Pitcock. And good evening, ladies and gentlemen. I'm very glad to have this uh, television visit with you tonight. I was glad to accept my opponent's challenge for this debate. I regret, however, that he declined the invitation of Channel 4 to make a joint appearance with me on the Challenge 72 program, a program that is sponsored by the Little Rock JCs. That appearance would have given each of us the opportunity to answer identical questions propounded by a panel of citizens. One thing that strikes me here is that um, those were some complicated <laughs> timing rules. Yeah, they really were. Like, um, he'll get to speak for 11, then he gets to speak for 8, then he gets to speak for 3. Well, and that was Jim Pitcock yeah. who was uh, moderating, and he pretty much ushered in, uh, along with political analyst Jim Rankino, but real modern political coverage uh, in the state mm -hmm. for, for television and uh, had extensive debates. Um, they were pretty staid yeah. uh, at the time, and they really followed the rules, which you don't see – Every right. time the, these days. Right. But, um, you know, in the end, after that debate, uh, Pryor was actually favored in the polls. Uh, the reason there was a runoff is he only trailed by 4% mm -hmm. of the vote. And they, uh, in, the, in the end of the runoff, um, McClellan only won with 52% of the right. vote. So it was still a pretty close race. And by the way, David Pryor gave maybe one of the best concession speeches uh, I think I've ever seen uh, after that loss. Very gracious loser. But that leads us to just two years later with yeah, another foreshadowing. huge debate. Yeah. Yes. And these were two, two more heavy hitters. Um that would be Senator William Fulbright and Arkansas Governor Dale Bumpers. Uh, Fulbright was 69. He was seeking his sixth wow. term uh, in the Senate. And 48-year-old uh, Dale Bumpers was uh, serving his second term as governor. So uh, – they faced off, and this was gathering so much national attention because of Fulbright's weight. Mm -hmm. um, it was broadcast f 
from Little Rock, KATV Studios, but nationally on ABC's, they had a, you heard it at the very beginning of the program, Issues and Answers, which was their public affairs political show. It's what eventually evolved into the thing with Stephanopoulos now. Right. This week. This week. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, let's hear the open to that one. Governor Bumper, Senator Fulbright, we're delighted to have you with us today. I understand this is your first joint television appearance, and probably it will be your last before the uh, campaign ends on Tuesday. Because our time is limited, we thought we would begin by asking each of you to uh, take just a moment or so, let's say a minute, to uh, state your case to the people of Arkansas and uh, the country. We've already had the toss of the coin, and Governor Bumpers, you won, so you start. Frank, thank you. First of all, I'd like to say that uh, I have felt, and one of the reasons I decided to make this race, that uh, the Congress has become, I think, increasingly insensitive to domestic issues. I think that uh, there has to be a building of a very strong state-federal relationship. That same relationship needs to be developed between the local communities and the federal government. The federal government must understand that government works best that's closest to the people. And I think that having been governor three and a half years and having seen all of the programs that come down here uh, with guidelines and regulations that we're supposed to administer, that simply has to be changed. Uh, Secondly, I think the seniority system has not served this country well. I I very much appreciate your getting us together. I had attempted to have a longer discussion with the governor, but uh, he didn't prefer, didn't wish to do that. I, of course, feel that uh, the governor, I noticed, says seniority didn't serve the country well. I'm not running for national office. I'm running for senator from Arkansas. And I'm quite certain the seniority system has served Arkansas very well and continues to and will always when it's a small state. So the reason I'm running, I have had 30 years experience. I am a senior member of the Senate. I think I can be of great help and value to this state. And that decision should be to the people. I could have, of course, stopped. I have plenty to live on from that matter, but I believe I owe it to my constituents to at least offer them the opportunity to continue with a senior and, I believe, above-average influential person in the Senate. And may I add further, I don't agree with the governor, that executive officers are necessarily closer to the people. So, uh, Bill Clinton who was, yes, uh, and I, even people a decade or two younger than me, he'd been in their life for 20 years when you include the his governorship and uh, presidency. Right. Well, and I forgot about him being attorney general, so right. uh, add two more to that. But uh, in 1984, he went up against Frank White, who and you think about the dynamic of this, you know, Clinton was governor from 78 to 80, mm-hmm. upset by Frank White, 80 to 82. Then he wins uh, the governor's seat back in 82. So this comes 1984 when they've both been in office. This is like best two out of three now. This is exactly. The, yeah. yeah, it's sort of like uh, Ali Frazier right. or something right. like that. And it kind of got that way. Yeah, let's... Yeah, now this was on KTHV. And Channel it's 11. in Yes, and it's in the KTV archives just because 
KTV recorded everything, and we were able to use excerpts mm -hmm. as long as we gave you know yeah, courtesy yeah. and credit. So here's Joe Quinn uh, moderating, and they had an interesting format. Uh, rather than podiums and on a stage, they were in a studio in chairs mm -hmm. side by side, and they were given uh, – well, what Joe Quinn described as free-for-all time or just some extra time for them to interact together, which is very unusual. So um, let's, you know, th that format set up just by itself made for some interesting exchanges. And all he's good at is just what you see him doing tonight, my friends, running me down or running somebody else down. It must be a terribly uncomfortable way to live. Well, of course, I only run uh, the governor's record down. I don't run him personally down. And, uh, you know, I think Bill Clinton's done some good things. But I also think he's a miserable failure when it comes to creating jobs. And he tells everybody how good it's going to be. It's not good. You get out across the state of Arkansas, we're not creating jobs. Well, what does that and make I, you if I'm a miserable failure since your record's so much worse than mine? The hey, bureau, go back. No, the, let the me, bureau right, let me of Labor's that. Go back to 81, You must be way down you know, there somewhere. I imagine Joe Quinn was a little <laughs> uncomfortable. I mean, they're getting heated there and... Oh, yeah. and he had to, yeah, he, he, at times he was moderating, mm -hmm. at times he was refereeing, I think. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, he did a heck of a job yeah. and uh, made for a really good debate. And uh, this is in 1990 uh, when he was debating a KTV-produced uh, debate here in Fayetteville. Uh, actually, I produced it. And um, with Jim Pitcock. And um, this got interesting because uh, this was a gubernatorial debate mm -hmm. in 1990. Mm -hmm. There was already talk that Clinton was going to run for president in 92, but he had always kind of dodged it. But Craig Cannon, who, who was on hear. the panel, yeah. uh, what we would do is we would include someone from KAIT, someone from ARN, and it was usually Neil Gladner moderating mm -hmm. from KARN or ARN, and then there would be someone from all the stations and usually the AP. Right. But um, this is Craig Cannon asking, I guess you'd call it the now famous question about uh, Bill Clinton and his future. What we're talking about the next four years, Governor Clinton here on statewide TV, in fact, national television, will you guarantee all of us that if reelected, there's absolutely positively no way that you'll run for any other political office and that you'll serve your term out in full? You bet. I told you when I announced for governor, I intended to run and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to serve four years. I made that decision when I decided to run. If you listen to all these political columnists, they'll tell you that no one much outside of Arkansas believes that I could do anything else. When I decided to run for governor, I decided to serve for four years as governor. I do think it's sort of sad that Sheffield Nelson, who said in 1985 he thought I'd make a good president, now thinks it's a bad thing when anybody from Arkansas that he's running against is considered. But I'm not being considered. I'm being considered as a candidate for governor. That's a job I want. And that's a job I'll do for the next four years. So what happened? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I, yeah, I think we used that a few times yes. during the next uh, couple of years. Now, I will say, A, because um, there had been – I went to that debate as a reporter, uh -huh. and there had been questions beforehand. Do you think anyone's going to ask him about that? 
Um, and I'm glad Craig Cannon did. Yeah, he had that one in his pocket. Yeah, I'm ready glad he to asked go. it. But I will say, Bill Clinton was correct, not being disingenuous, when he said a lot of, you know, most people outside of Arkansas weren't considering him a major player. You would hear him talked about, but it was far more conversation inside Arkansas at that point than Absolutely. it was outside Arkansas. Yeah. Bill Clinton was a heck of a debater. Yeah. And um, this is in 1992 during the presidential debates, and KTV covered those. And I was here in St. Louis, Missouri, at Washington University for the first debate. And, you know, Perot was included in those, which I thought made it kind of awkward. And, you know, they were mostly kind of uneventful. Um, but there was one good exchange between Clinton and Bush. And um, I loved Clinton's response to this. It was when Bush had continued to question his patriotism about when he was in college he uh, protested the Vietnam War, and he even went to Russia, or USSR. And so um, this is what candidate Bill Clinton had to say. You have questioned my patriotism. You even brought some right-wing congressmen into the White House to plot how to attack me for going to Russia in 1969-1970, when over 50,000 other Americans did. Now, I honor your service in World War II. I honor Mr. Perot's service in uniform and the service of every man and woman who ever served, including Admiral Crowell, who was your chairman of the Joint Chiefs and who's supporting me. But when Joe McCarthy went around this country attacking people's patriotism, he was wrong. He was wrong. And a senator from Connecticut stood up to him named Prescott Bush. Mm -hmm. Your father was right to stand up to Joe McCarthy. You were wrong to attack my patriotism. I was opposed to the war, but I love my country. And we need a president who will bring this country together, not divide it. We've had enough division. I want to lead a unified country. I'll tell you the truth. Debates for the majority of the time are pretty boring. Mm -hmm. I mean, not a lot happens and you know out of a one hour debate you might get 10 really good minutes right so you know and they know that the candidates know that they're looking for that sound bite because that's what people are going to pay attention to right and i think that's one of the things i don't like about them yeah the substance doesn't really rise to the top especially when you've only got like two or three minutes to yeah no they're looking for that yeah lead sound bite yeah but I kind of went the opposite direction. Uh-huh. It started to feel my uh, editing skills that I hadn't used in many years. And so I, I'm, I actually I watched to prepare for this. I watched 27 debates from our archives. And they ranged from one hour to two and a half hours, I think. Whoa. And yeah. And and I as I was watching and listening, uh you know, it just kept coming to mind about all right, the time here and the time there and your time's up and all that. So I put together a little uh, montage or a minutia mashup, if you will. Uh just uh some highlights from some of the 27. 
Before we get started tonight, I would like to give you just a quick explanation of the rules of the debate. Let me start this evening by introducing you to our panelists. A panel of journalists will also question the candidates in alternating order. And you, our viewers, will be our fifth panelist. Each candidate will have two minutes for opening and closing remarks. He will have 90 seconds to respond. His opponent then gets 60 seconds to rebut, and then the candidate gets 30 seconds for follow-up. Each candidate will be given two minutes to answer a question. The opposing candidate will receive two minutes to respond, and the candidate to whom the question was first posed will have one minute for rebuttal. After each pair of questions and answers, we'll have a two-minute free-for-all. Um, I should also tell you that the candidates have in front of them timing lights, so they'll be told when they have 30 seconds left in their statement. As a producer, did you prefer debates that had a live audience or did not have a live audience? Tell you the truth, I never did one without a live audience. Okay. We uh, made the decision early on that once we had the technical capability to do something like that, mm -hmm. that we would have multiple cameras in an auditorium with a screened audience. See, that's another thing that you, right. a factor you bring in. So you're dealing with the campaigns and all of those people, mm -hmm. and then the candidates themselves, and then even the, you know, you're, you're vetting the questions. Right. Uh, not vetting them, but reviewing them with mm -hmm. the uh, panelists. And uh, so, yeah, there are a lot of factors to, to think about. Speaking of audiences, yes. tomorrow night, you and I, will, we will not be debating, I don't think, <laughs> but we will have an audience. Yes, we're going to do a live video version of this radio segment. We'll be pulling items from things you've heard uh, over the years on this program and some new stuff, but I'm going to have the video with it so we can watch it on the big screen. We'll be there having fun. All right. And this is our last show of the year, isn't it? That's right. You and I will be back on Ozarks at Large on January 8th. Okay. All right. I'll be gathering all kinds of stuff. Well, hopefully you're not watching and debates between Plus, next year, at some point, That's right. I don't know a date yet, but... Stay tuned because we will have all 26,000 hours of video up on our website sometime in 2024. And there'll be ways that you can find things. It's, it's not going to be the easiest task, but this is stuff that dates back, you know, right. 60, 70 years. Right. So... Uh, It'll be fun. We've got a lot to do this, yeah, this do. coming year. Job security. Randy Dixon <laughs> is with the Pryor Center for Arkansas Oral and Visual History. Happy holidays. I'll see you tomorrow night. And everybody have a happy new year. This is Ozarks at Large. Thank you again to everybody who contributed last week during our end-of-year on-air fundraiser. We certainly appreciate it, and we simply could not do this kind of radio without the financial support of listeners like you. Everybody loves a David Beats Goliath sports story. 
unless you're Goliath. Yesterday, the Arkansas Pine Bluff women pulled off a huge upset, defeating the Arkansas Razorbacks in Bud Walton Arena 74-70. It was the first ever win for UAPB over Arkansas. The Razorbacks had won all previous matchups by an average of more than 32 points. Arkansas, now 8-3 and three on the year, will next play Samford in North Little Rock on Saturday. The Razorback men's basketball team also playing Saturday in North Little Rock, facing Lipscomb. The Razorbacks lost to Oklahoma in Tulsa Saturday, 79-70. The Razorback volleyball season is over, but it was the most successful in program history. The Razorbacks lost to the overall number one team in the NCAA tournament, Nebraska, Saturday evening in four sets. It was the first time the Razorbacks had advanced to the Elite Eight. The Razorbacks end the season 28-6, with five of those six losses coming to teams that made it at least as far as the Sweet 16 in the NCAA tournament. Ten people will be inducted into the Arkansas Sports Hall of Fame next spring as the class of 2024. Inductees include the late Ryan Mallett, who played high school football in Arkansas, starred as a Razorback quarterback for three years, and later coached high school football in Mountain Home and Pine Bluff. He drowned while on vacation in Florida earlier this year. Other inductees include high school basketball coach Carla Crowder, former Razorback football players Peyton Hillis and Jason Peters, and longtime general manager of Oaklawn, Eric Jackson. The induction ceremony, the 65th in the history of the Arkansas Sports Hall of Fame, will take place in April. And the British magazine Athletics Weekly is naming Razorback freshman Shanti Jackson as the International Under-20 Female Athlete of the Year. She earned a pair of gold medals earlier this year at the Under-20 Pan American Championships. Tomorrow on Ozarks at Large, how does the Arkansas State Library Board affect your local library anyway? So... That work is impacted um, pretty directly. We hear from librarians and more about the importance of the Arkansas State Library Board and the effect of politically motivated appointments. That's tomorrow on Ozarks at Large. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook with Arkansas. I'm doing it right, I'm dynamite. I'm doing it right, I'm dynamite. Just light my fuse and hold on tight. And the night will be cold. Everything you told me, nothing did long to find. Miss, 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 being the king, I'll try to slip you in between. If you have to wait in line as well, with the time to get you wrapped into the wire. Dan Hicks was born December 9, 1941, in Little Rock. Part of an Air Force family, Hicks grew up in Santa Rosa, California, and drummed in high school bands. He performed skits and parodies on local radio and pursued a degree in broadcasting at San Francisco State, from which he graduated in 1965. Hicks eventually joined the Charlatans, one of the Bay Area's first psychedelic bands. Although the Charlatans issued only one single during its existence, the group proved influential throughout the San Francisco musical scene, in which the late 1960s became the soundtrack to the burgeoning hippie movement. In 1968, Hicks formed Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks as an acoustic opening act for the Charlatans. Soon, the new band became his primary project. Some folks say when you fall in love, you lose your appetite. With the Lickettes, a pair of female backing vocalists, and his fondness for old jump blues music and humor, Dan Hicks didn't fit the psychedelic mold. The group issued its debut in 1969. Dan Hicks and his Hot Licks issued three more albums in the early 1970s, Where's the Money, Striking It Rich, and Last Train to Hicksville. Time to roll over and see what other tricks you got. Time to move over, let the new guy take a shot. Strike it while it's hot, cause later there might not be any room for thought. 1973's Last Train to Hicksville was the best-selling album yet from Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks. 
The group toured internationally, and Hicks appeared on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson and on the cover of Rolling Stone magazine. Yes, things were going great for Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks until they broke up. Five years later, the Pulaski County native released his first solo album called It Happened One Bite. It was the soundtrack to an uncompleted feature by animator Ralph Bakshi, best known for the film Fritz the Cat. Bakshi's movie was never completed. Hicks nearly went so underground himself. Because the piano has been was another dry 15 years for Dan Hicks fans until 1994's Shootin' Straight was issued, live with a new band called the Acoustic Warriors. In the year 2000, over two decades after the group's dissolution, the reclusive Hicks reformed the Hot Licks and issued an album called Beatin' the Heat. With decades as a musician behind him but only a handful of sometimes hard-to-classify albums, Dan Hicks has not blazed the charts. But he's gotten around, and in the process, he's become something of a cult figure. His 2000 comeback featured peers like Tom Waits and Bette Midler and acolytes like Elvis Costello and Brian Setzer. Alive and Lickin' arrived a year later, and the swing beats, rapid-fire jive humor, and the lickettes were still intact. I've never tried to copy, Hicks has said. I've always tried to phrase things originally. Here in its entirety is Little Rock native Dan Hicks and I Scare Myself with Ricky Lee Jones from the 2000 return of Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks.
Little Rock native Dan Hicks and his hot licks with Ricky Lee Jones and his own remake of I Scare Myself from 2000. It's another song of Arkansas. From Little Rock, I'm Stephen Cook. With Arkansas. Arkansas is underwritten by Arkansas Heritage. Relive your favorite Barton Coliseum concert memories at the Old State House Museum in downtown Little Rock, where they still play it loud. Ozarks at Large is a production of 91.3 KUAF, a listener-supported service of the University of Arkansas. Contributors today included Jack Travis, Jacqueline Froelich, Randy Dixon, and Stephen Cook. Additional help from our partner, Talk Business and Politics. Our community engagement manager at KUAF is Jasper Logan, who is back at the Carver Center for Public Radio today after a few weeks away for parental leave. Congratulations. Congratulations to Jasper. Uh, And to mom, too. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. Uh, Matthew produced today's show in the Bruce and Ann Applegate News Studio 2. We'll be with you again tomorrow for a brand new edition of Ozarks at Large Time for a KUAF nursery. I, yeah, I think so. You, Ryan, and Jasper all have young ones two years, two years older or less. Younger. Yeah. yeah, we've got the we've got the the family room downstairs. Right. Um, right. It's it's currently a bike storage space <laughs> for me, but we'll find some room in there. We'll, there you we'll, go. I can move the bike for for a nursery. All Happy right. to do I love that. that idea. Hey, as I said, we'll be back tomorrow from the Carver Center for Public Radio. I'm Kyle Kellums. I'm Matthew Moore. Be well. Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art presents the final weeks of Listening Forest. Guests are invited to explore an interactive world of light, sound, and wonder in this immersive nighttime experience. Exhibition closes December 31st. Tickets at crystalbridges.org. The Ozark Society is a regional conservation organization known for saving the Buffalo National River from being dammed. Members across the state who love rivers and wild lands hike, volunteer, and work toward a common goal of keeping the natural state natural. Information on memberships at ozarksociety.net.